and welcome to the CSIS Strategic Technologies Podcast. Today we're going to discuss how one technology could completely change the public debate about secure communications and surveillance, quantum computing. We secure communications and data transmissions online primarily through encryption. The premise of certain types of encryption, like public key encryption, is that factoring large prime numbers is pretty difficult. This is actually not true if you have a quantum computer. In the 1990s, mathematician Peter Shore discovered a quantum algorithm that would be able to solve the prime factors of a number using a quantum computer. Only recently have quantum computers moved from the realm of hypothetical thought experiments to physical entities, which we'll hear about in a minute, and these technological advances could transform the entire field of communication security. Quantum technologies could crack common encryption ciphers and have consequences for espionage, criminal hacking, and could call into question the fundamental trust we place in our communication networks. But security and privacy experts can take some solace in quantum technologies, namely quantum cryptography and other processes that use quantum properties to create highly secure channels of communication. So the race is on. Which quantum applications will advance faster, and what are the implications for security? Will expectations of secure communication as we know it cease to exist, or is unbreakable quantum encryption on the horizon? To understand these effects and applications of quantum computing, we need to get to the basics of how this technology works. Today we have a series of guests on the program that will explain quantum computing and the impact of quantum computing and quantum technologies on communication networks. So to give us some background on quantum computing, we reached out to Seth Lloyd at MIT. Dr. Lloyd is a professor of mechanical engineering and physics, where he researches quantum systems and quantum computation. He has authored over 200 scientific publications, including a very helpful article explaining quantum computing titled, The Universe is a Quantum Computer. The thing about quantum mechanics, which is important to remember, that quantum mechanics is weird. It's a, a strange, counterintuitive, and funky. So all kinds of bizarre things happen that don't accord with our ordinary intuition. Yeah, the, the phrase spooky action at a distance comes to mind, right? Yes, though it sounds better in German the way Einstein first said it, spookhafte Fernwirkung. <laughs> yeah, so there's a, kind of the, the, I guess the fundamental weirdness of quantum mechanics can be described as wave-particle duality, um, which means that things that we think of as waves, like light or sound, are actually made up of particles. A particle of light is called a photon, and a particle of sound is called a phonon. And uh, similarly, things that we think of as particles, like electrons or atoms, have waves that are associated with them. This has a funny feature that uh, an electron, for instance, the wave corresponding to an electron can be in many places at once, which means one electron can be in many places at the same time. And we don't normally think of particles as being in many places at once unless, you know, the particle of a soccer ball on Lionel Messi is, is dribbling it around. But uh, it, it, uh, this leads to all kinds of funky effects. The particles exhibiting these funky effects are called qubits, and understanding them is key to explaining how quantum computing is such a powerful tool to solving hard problems. So qubits are particles, they're elementary particles like electrons, um, which unlike a conventional bit, which can be either zero or one, Qubits can be spin up, which we'll say is like one, um, spin down, which we'll say is like zero, and in a superposition, which is sort of zero and one at the same time. That's Evan Rolf, an associate at Avacent, an aerospace and defense consulting firm in Washington, D.C. 
Evan provides strategic advice to clients on new technology developments and implementations, including quantum computing. And when you observe that superposition, it collapses into either zero or one. But when it is in that superposition, it sort of there's a probability at which it will collapse into the zero or the one state. And what happens is when you entangle these qubits, um, you are able to store or to uh, work with information much more efficiently. Um, so if you have two qubits, uh, you have coefficients for four different possibilities for the outcomes. So essentially you can, you can code four bits of information into two qubits that are entangled in superpositions. What this ends up meaning once you scale up to a larger number of qubits is that you can really deal with a fantastic amount of information. The rule is that n qubits can have the information of 2 to the n classical bits. So in the end, 100 qubits can represent 2 to the 100 uh, classical bits, which is it's 1.26 times 10 to the 30th. So as you scale up the quantum computer, the ability to work with information for certain types of problems, and it is limited to certain types of problems, scales up exponentially, and you can do certain types of calculations exponentially faster. So back to Seth. Quantum, quantum science is a discipline. When did this start to evolve? When did people uh, start developing these theories of, of quantum computing? So ideas of information in quantum mechanics have been there from the very beginning. In fact, uh, the very first paper written on quantum mechanics um, by Max Planck in 1900 was to understand this physical quantity called entropy. And um, entropy is often described as a measure of disorder or randomness. But actually, at bottom, it's a measure of information. It's the amount of information required to describe the um, uh, ways that atoms and molecules can rattle around in a box or the ways that light can radiate. So uh, it's really a measure of bits, bits of information. And um, Planck uh, came up, there was a, a great paradox, which is that back when people thought that everything was classical and continuous, it seemed like the amount of information required to describe something like light or heat was infinite. And uh, just because it takes an infinite number of bits to describe the continuous position of a particle. And this didn't jive with uh, what people actually observed. So Planck said, hey, maybe things are quantized, but they're actually kind of discrete or digital. So the amount of bits required to describe the way that an electron could rattle around or that light could rattle around was actually finite. So actually, ideas about information have been in quantum mechanics from the very beginning. The idea of using quantum mechanics to perform computation, that is to perform information processing, didn't show up until around 1980 when Paul Benioff and then Richard Feynman uh, realized that you could build a computer using quantum mechanical systems. So for instance, you could take electrons, and the bits in the computer would be the spin of the electrons. And then you could perform simple logical operations by having the electrons interact with each other. Uh, no doubt this is because computers weren't on people's minds back in 1900, and they were very much on people's minds in 1980. Anyway, so uh, then in the early 1980s, um, the idea of performing quantum computation was proposed, but nobody had any idea of how to do it, how you might build a quantum computer. But then in uh, 1993, I showed uh, how you could uh, take a collection of electrons, zap them with light, and if you did this in just the right way and massage their internal state, then you could actually convince them to compute. So then you could actually build a quantum computer, and pretty much right away, people started building quantum computers using electrons, ion traps, etc. And now, the last, for the last 25 years, uh, people have been building quantum computers 
right and left, and now we have actually rather powerful quantum computers, even though they're still rather small by classical standards. How do you, how do you think about the different manifestations of these quantum computers, and what are the differences between what they can do? There are lots of different ways of building quantum computers. You can make them with electrons, you can make them with superconducting circuits, you can make them with ions and ion traps, or atoms trapped in optical lattices. You can use them for a variety of different purposes. So at the kind of top level, they're kind of general purpose quantum computers that could do not any, anything that a regular classical computer could do, but if, if you could take advantage of this ability, this natural ability of uh, electrons and photons to uh, register two different values at once, then you could perform computations that couldn't be done classically. Perhaps the most famous such computation is Peter Shor's algorithm for factoring large numbers, which would allow you to break all existing public key crypto systems. That would be a very disruptive technology. Actually, kind of luckily uh, for folks like me who like to buy things over the Internet and who use public key cryptography all the time, quantum computers that can break such crypto systems are probably a ways away. But in the meanwhile, we have smaller quantum computers that can do all kinds of other things. And special purpose quantum computers that can do things you can't do classically. So, for example, B-Wave is a company in uh, Vancouver that's built what's called a quantum annealer. It's a device that uses quantum mechanics to try to find the answers to hard problems. And it does, in fact, find the answers to hard problems, and it does behave in a quantum mechanical way. It's not clear that it can solve hard problems better than classical computers yet, but they have a, very, uh, a, a substantial and rather beautiful device that has thousands of quantum bits in it built uh, using superconducting technology. And, and lots of people now are trying out these D-Wave devices to put them through their papers and see what they can do. And another kind of a quantum, special purpose quantum device that people are using right now are what are called quantum simulators. One thing that quantum computers are very good at is simulating other quantum systems, which is actually a very hard thing to do. This was pointed out by Richard Feynman in 1982. And in 1994, I showed how you could actually take a quantum computer and use it to simulate other quantum systems. So people are making devices using ion traps and optical lattices and superconducting systems that allow you to tease out wacky and funky quantum effects in, in uh, solid state and elementary particle systems. Um, these are rather lovely systems, actually. Uh, uh, and uh, uh, they're finding all kinds of things that you can never find without, uh, even if you had the largest classical supercomputer. Really, these uh, various quantum information processing technologies represent a kind of a great sandbox for playing around with the elementary stuff of the universe. And in the near, rather near future, I, I suspect that we'll also have quantum computers that can solve all kinds of hard problems um, that people are interested in that you can't solve classically. A nice example that will come before things like factoring and code breaking is um, machine learning. Quantum computers turn out to be excellent at finding patterns in uh, data that you can't find using a classical computer. Um, maybe just because uh, because quantum systems are weird and funky, they can generate weird patterns that you can't generate classically. You can also analyze and find patterns that you can't find classically. So, uh, for example, Google has uh, an artificial intelligence group, a quantum artificial intelligence group, where they're um, building special purpose quantum computers to do 
machine learning problems and define patterns you couldn't find classically. So Google has is is using this for um, artificial intelligence. What are the other the other applications of the the sandbox? A lot of sandbox, yeah. Um, a very uh, close analogy is the is the uh, analogy with music. A classical computer just goes through a particular sequence of states. So it's like a kind of a pure tone. It's like a solo voice or, you know, a Gregorian chant, you know, <laughs> whereas, whereas a, a quantum computer is like a symphony. There are many, many different waves interfere with each other in a way that causes, if you like, informational chords uh, that have a much richer spectrum of information processing. And it's this symphonic effect that allows quantum computers to gain their power. Many, many processes that go on in ordinary computation involve things that actually are wave-like in nature. So, for instance, a common problem is to find if you have a function and it repeats over and over and over again. So that is to say it's periodic, which means it is kind of wave-like because waves are famously periodic, they come in again and again and again with the same shape. A quantum computer can find this underlying wave-like periodicity much, much faster than a classical computer. Mm-hmm. And many, many, this is actually called, classically this is called taking a Fourier transform, which finds the underlying periodic structure of um, data. And there are many, many processes, for instance, in, in learning patterns or in finding correlations predicting the stock market, picking out, finding an, an unknown pattern inside of a huge amount of data that rely on this kind of process. So quantum computers are much better in principle than classical computers at these kinds of processes. So back to Evan. In what industries are these efficiencies most valuable? Mm-hmm. So w- which industries stand to benefit the most from this new technology? You know, there are a few different ways of thinking about this. You can look at it in terms of who ultimately can benefit from using these different types of applications. You can also look at it in terms of who is most likely to try to use novel approaches to solve these sorts of problems. So for instance, machine learning is something that could impact a large number of industries. And you see more and more use of data analytics or advanced analytics techniques to apply uh, machine learning and neural networks to a number of different applications. So even you know the government is using it for all sorts of um, uh, different problems that are arising um, with things like you know, um, readiness or, or whatnot. You mentioned the IT, mm-hmm. big IT companies, yep. the Googles, uh, Facebook, IBM. Apart from that sector of industry, what are the other sectors that are really mm-hmm. looking at that? Um, Airbus yeah. or is yeah, so Airbus and the IC, I guess, taking out those? <laughs> yeah, well, so the IC, right. And yeah. then, then you get into sort of engineering companies. And we'll, we're seeing it mostly in um, the defense sector right now. So Lockheed Martin uses a D-Wave computer. Um, or has access to it. Uh, Airbus is looking into trying to um, develop algorithms for quantum computing. Um, and that's really for the engineering modeling role that it could play. Um, so for instance, Airbus is really interested in, um, you know, can you get to developing uh, hydrogenic aircraft much faster than you would using conventional modeling? Um, there's definitely the potential for, I think, universally agreed, potential for significant speed up with quantum computers for modeling issues. Um, so that's an area where, especially for fluid dynamics, Airbus is seeing a lot of potential and possibility. 
So what would that, um, speeding up the modeling process, mm -hmm. what would that look like in terms of time or capital saved um, through that? Yeah, so you're looking at exponentially faster time to prototype for aircraft. Um, and, and that will allow us to develop new types of very advanced aircraft, so very fast aircraft, for example, that currently it's just difficult for us to do fluid dynamics modeling at any sort of uh, scale because the, to run the model it takes so long that um, it, it's just difficult to have that engineering process and do it with any sort of speed. Um, so that's where I think you're going to see a lot of it. I think that the aviation industry is going to be some of the first to it. Um, you know, Lockheed Martin is interested in some some slightly different areas of that, and I'm sure Nadal can speak to that. Um, but you know, they're also interested in the implications it can have on on software. So you you see different aspects of this that are interesting to the engineering sector, and I think within aviation or aerospace and defense, this is a sector that really has the capital to spend on trying new technologies, and where you have firms that are really trying to be the leading edge to um, get to these new technologies faster that you can't necessarily access using, let's say, modeling on a classical computer. Um, so that's, that's an area that I think is particularly exciting for it. The other sector that you're seeing some interest in is the financial industry. Um, certainly it's an industry where there's significant modeling requirements. You're seeing firms develop algorithms in order to sell those ultimately to companies that are in the sector. And we're not really at the point where those are really getting to be in common use. Um, but I think that that's an, an industry where something like machine learning could give you a leading edge in terms of modeling, um, in terms of uh, you know, machine learning-based pre predictions. It's not going to be perfect. It's going to take some time. It's going to take a lot of development. But you have the incentive structure set up there that companies would put in the investment in order to develop something in quantum computing. Yeah, and certainly I can see how if you can speed up the speed up the time and the improve those models, you could have be able to prove the returns pretty yeah. um, pretty easily. Yeah. I mean, outside of that, you're getting into sectors where it's just difficult to get the investment together for that. So there might be some interest in the biomedical sector um, in terms of new drug development, in terms of therapy development, optimization for different types of therapies. Right now, that's mostly in the research stage. So academic institutions primarily that are doing research are getting access to quantum computing. But again, they're not necessarily going to have the financial resources to invest. You might see some investment from drug companies. We're not really seeing it quite yet. But as you move down the line into other sectors, oil and gas, and then into industrials and into logistics, you just sort of get less and less capital that would be put into cutting-edge solutions. So in terms of the adoption curve, those, com those sectors are sort of later on the adoption curve, and engineering and financial are on the beginning of the adoption curve. So back to Seth. What are some obstacles, technological or otherwise, that are barriers to the greater adoption of this technology? Well, it's just hard to do. I mean, you know, you're trying to make... Uh, it's already amazing that classical computers have gotten so much more powerful over the last half century. You know, they're millions of times more powerful than they were even 40 years ago. This has come by the ongoing miniaturization of the components of computer. Of computers, the, this is a, a phenomenon called Moore's law, where the the uh, size and speed of the components of computers doubles every couple of years, and this has been going on for half a century now. With the result that our current computers are very, very, very fast and powerful. But in quantum computers, you're trying to build bits and the underlying components of these of these computers that are millions of times smaller than the components of conventional computers. 
even those components, though those components are already very tiny. I mean, you try to make computers where you're storing bits of information on individual atoms, and conventional transistors in current computers already have millions of atoms in them. So it's just a tough job. It's, uh, you know, uh, getting, getting the kind of control and precision that you need in order to uh, uh, convince these atoms to work together to compute is just very hard. Um, and as I said, the, the basic ideas for performing quantum computation came from ideas that I proposed in 1993 in a very beautiful paper by Ignacio Serac and Peter Zola in 1994 where they showed how you could use ions trapped in ion traps, charged atoms um, trapped with electromagnetic fields to perform quantum computation. More recently, technologies using superconductors have, um, have come to the fore. In a superconducting computer, quantum computer, you can have a little tiny superconducting loop and it, because it's superconducting, there's no resistance in the loop. So a supercurrent going around the loop clockwise registers a zero. A superconducting current going around the loop counterclockwise registers a one. These currents can go on in principle forever without ever stopping. And then a supercurrent going both clockwise and counterclockwise simultaneously registers zero and one at the same time. So these are, um, a lot of progress has been made over the last, 25 years and building quantum computers, but we're still pretty far away from large-scale ones. Um, we're soon going to have, in the next few years, we'll have you know, general-purpose quantum computers with 50 quantum bits, and in five to 10 years, we should have you know, 500 or 1,000 quantum bits. But you know, conventional computers have billions of classical bits. And these special-purpose computers that people build, like the D-Wave device, uh, these quantum simulators have thousands of quantum bits right now. But it's still a technologically daunting problem to build a large-scale quantum computer. I mean, the progress has been steady, but it's still slow. The goal is to be able to build a computer that even, you know, by the classical version of Moore's Law, you wouldn't get to for another 25 or 30 years, even if classical computation were to miniaturize at its current rate. Uh, it wouldn't be at the atomic scale until 2040 or something like that. What are what are some common misconceptions um, people have about quantum? I talk with people about quantum mechanics all the time, not just specialists, but ordinary people. Quantum mechanics, I think everybody realizes that quantum mechanics is strange and counterintuitive and has these things like spooky action and resistance. I mean, one, one mis misconception about spooky action and resistance uh, is that even though it appears when you look at something over here that something instantaneously happens over there, which is this thing, this feature of entanglement that Einstein objected to, it's not really the case. For instance, it would seem on the face of it that you could use this effect to communicate faster than the speed of light, but you can't do that. Really, in fact, this spooky action at a distance, in some sense, it's spooky and it's at, and, and it's at a distance, but it's not action. The reason that it appears to be action at a distance is that our feeble classical imagination can't really conceive well of how quantum mechanics actually behave uh, when uh, quantum things are far apart from each other. So that's one misconception that people have, um, that uh, you, know, you could use spooky action at a distance to communicate faster than light. Another misconception that people sometimes have is that you could use 
quantum computers to solve any really hard problem. There's a class of problems called that are called NP-complete. These are very common problems where there's a feature that you're trying to solve some hard problem. The famous one is the traveling salesman problem, where the problem is to find the shortest route that will visit, for example, all the capitals of the 50 states returning to Washington, starting at Washington, D.C., and returning from Washington, D.C. There are many, many possible different routes, and uh, on the face of it, uh, even though you know there are some sensible ones, it could be very hard to find the shortest one. But if somebody has a really good route or knows the shortest route, then they could exhibit it to you and you could, you could say, oh, yeah, this is a really, really short route. These are problems where finding the answer is hard, but if somebody gives you the answer, it's not so hard to verify that it's true. So um, it would be great if quantum computers could solve all those kinds of problems as well because these kinds of routing, scheduling, optimization problems, they're everywhere, and um, a huge amount of computing power goes into solving them. But it doesn't appear to be the case that quantum computers can solve these much faster than classical computers. So quantum computers are not some kind of panacea or cure-all for our hard problems. Another question that people often ask me is, oh, well, when will we have a, you know, a quantum computer in a laptop? Um, so first of all, it's not clear why you would want a quantum computer in your laptop in the sense that there's no particular advantage to using quantum mechanics to, for example, run uh, uh, word processing programs or spreadsheets and, and secondly, I think that it's going to be the kind of technologies that you need to build quantum computers. Well, the computers themselves are very, very small. You're controlling individual atoms or eensy-weensy superconducting circuits. But because it's such a hard, controlled problem, you typically need a laboratory full of apparatus to make this happen. So, for example, the D-wave quantum computers or other superconducting quantum computers you have to cool down the superconducting circuit to within a tiny fraction of a degree above absolute zero. For this, you need a very powerful refrigerator called a helium dilution refrigerator. And uh, though they can be relatively small, they still, you know, they're still the size of a large beer keg, and they cost half a million dollars, and they need a whole bunch of electronics snaking in and out of, out of them. So I think it's going to be quite some time before we have really compact quantum computers and you know it may never happen yeah. i don't think of course it'd be nice to have a quantum smartphone you could run quantum apps or claps on but i think that this is somewhat unrealistic <laughs> yeah and it seems that the the cost there the marginal use doesn't justify the cost involved on a laptop yeah though i mean in some sense you know it, it's actually if you look at the way supercomputing and other powerful computing problems are going you know, people do a lot of their computing these days on the cloud. It would be perfectly possible for to do, you know, quantum computing on the cloud. We could do, you know, it would be the, the cloud spelled Q-L-O-U-D, quantum cloud. <laughs> uh, so D-Wave, for instance, lets people run quantum algorithms on their quantum devices over the Internet. And IBM just launched a program to allow people to run a small quantum computer themselves over the Internet. So you can take the quantum computer out for a spin. So that's actually already happening. Uh, you know, D-Wave actually uh, rents out its, its quantum computer to different companies. There's one called One Quantum that applies the D-Wave device to do financial analysis. 
Our current system of communications protocols relies on three core cryptographic functionalities, public key encryption, digital signatures, and key exchanges. These functions are secure because certain theoretic problems, for example, integer factorization or the discrete log problem, are very difficult to solve using our regular computer. Quantum computing, however, has the potential to completely upend the status quo. Joining us to explain quantum communications potential is Dr. Ned Allen, Lockheed Martin's chief scientist and corporate senior fellow. Dr. Allen is advising Lockheed Martin on emerging technology programs and served as the chief scientist of Skunk Works. He started Lockheed Martin's quantum programs a decade ago and has been leading them ever since. Dr. Allen, thanks for joining us. So my first question is, what are the implications for our current communication system given quantum computers? Well, the principal concerns of communicators are clarity of expression, brevity compared to channel capacity, and privacy from eavesdropping. Clarity often means including both textual and graphical elements, as well as tonal variations, voice inflections, and other identifiers of the intent of the message, including someday other sensory elements. So one aspiration of quantum informationists is that quantum-enabled communication might be able to convey these multidimensional elements more efficiently because qubits are multidimensional in nature and thus could embody multidimensional information. So far, we've not been able to exploit that richness very well, however, but it's coming. If we could do so, it would greatly enhance the channel capacity of our communication systems and reduce, at least to some extent, the pressure and competition for more channel capacity. Of course, human beings will always find more ways to say things and more things to say, and they'll use up the available bandwidth, I'm sure. Yes, yeah, we're seeing now with Pokemon Go and right. <laughs> using up all that bandwidth. But will quantum computers eventually be able to crack all types of encryption? That is often said, and certainly quantum computers will be very powerful, but that is surely inaccurate. While there exists one quantum algorithm that can, in principle at least, break the most popular encryption schemes of today, if there were a quantum computer configured to run it and large enough to be useful, that's called the Shore algorithm, incidentally, and it's able to break RSA encryption, uh, no such computer, however, exists today, and, and while many are trying to develop one, progress has been stymied by some fundamental topological limitations and the great sensitivity quantum computers have to the many causes of error in computing. And much to our dismay, it appears that such sensitivity increases as the computer is scaled up to handle increasingly challenging problems and increasingly secure encryption schemes. So as each more secure encryption scheme is deployed, that is going from 64-bit encryption to 128-bit encryption and so on up, an ever larger quantum machine is required to crack the code. Every new time a new machine emerges, the code makers can simply increase the strength of their encryption algorithms at some cost, though minor by comparison, in channel capacity used for transmitting the more securely encrypted bits. What you're saying is that quantum computers can only hack some types of encryption, which, as uh, Dr. Lloyd mentioned earlier, is generally good for anyone 
who likes to buy things online or communicate privately. Other than breaking encryption, however, could quantum computers be used in other ways to get into computer networks? Hmm. Well, the 400-pound gorilla in the room is the fact that none of the notorious hacks we've heard about since the Internet was created have involved cracking an encryption code directly. They've all been via extraneous vulnerabilities not related to encryption and exploiting other features, especially human weaknesses in communication systems. Forensic investigation, for example, of the famous 2011 attack on the secure ID tokens of RSA, Inc., were executed by some sort of theft of keys rather than cracking the code itself. In other words, an inside job of sorts. Neither the hack of Sony Pictures uh, nor that of the Office of Personnel Management were due to cracking any codes by clever algorithms on classical or quantum computers. They were also determined to be inside jobs in the sense of software worms and other malware inserted into the host system somehow. I suspect the leak of emails from the Democratic National Committee uh, that uh, was announced so recently will also prove to be an inside job in the same sense. If you wanted to know, for example, my mother's social security number, why just call her up and ask her. She'll tell you. This is a hopeless hyperbole, of course, because my wonderful mother passed away some years back. But these kinds of vulnerabilities, sometimes referred to as side channels, are legion across all networks and social systems, whether computer-supported or not. The point is that public key distribution systems based on one-way mathematical functions, like prime factorization, are probably pretty safe, whether quantum computers mature into a robust scientific and technical tool or not. The real threats to our system is elsewhere. It is, in fact, ourselves and our own human weaknesses. That's comforting, at least, that quantum computing doesn't pose too much of a threat for the time being. Moving on to some of the benefits of quantum, what are the benefits of quantum cryptography, and, and what is quantum cryptography? Well, uh, quantum cryptography is cryptography that is not brittle. Brittle ciphers are those made unintelligible by a single secret or two. So when you know the secret, you can easily crack all the coded messages. Grade school children's pig Latin is an example. Once you know the secret, you can easily talk in pig Latin. Quantum codes are made secret by dint of the laws of quantum physics and are not brittle because those laws are thought inviolable. The best-known technique, though there are others, is called quantum key distribution, or QKD. After all, it is the distribution of the key and the risk that it may fall into the wrong hands that is the point of vulnerability in cryptography. The message, once encrypted, is sent in the clear for all to listen to. For centuries, it's been known that the one-time pad, that type of encryption that uses a key only once, is perfectly secure so long as the key is random. The State Department used to send its embassies crypto keys that were random strings of numbers on large reels of magnetic tape 
delivered by special agents carrying shielded briefcases. QKD would eliminate that quaint romantic practice and still not have to use public key distribution or other techniques based on one-way functions which are theoretically vulnerable to quantum computers. Again, assuming that a quantum computer adequate to the task could be built. So are there any potential drawbacks or problems with this quantum key distribution QKD technology? Uh, QKD relies on detection of eavesdropping rather than its prevention because it relies on the fundamental phenomenon that the measurement of any feature of a quantum signal that is carrying information inevitably changes the signal in a random way that makes it useless as a key and thus makes it obvious that someone is listening, that a hack is taking place. While keys are themselves random strings, when combined with the information-carrying signal, they render the signal intelligible and if the signal is still scrambled after applying the key, you clearly have the wrong key or someone is listening. Either way, you know the key is unusable. While detection of eavesdroppers is important forensically, it does not mean the message is secure. It means the cat is already out of the bag. That is, the message has probably been leaked out and privacy has been breached. The practical implications are that the channel is no longer usable, so hacking a quantum channel may be equivalent to a denial-of-service attack. So does this mean that these communication channels are not very resilient? What can be done to improve the chances of passing along these messages? Well, QKD must be combined with some sort of low-probability intercept technique if our goal is to get the message across to the recipient rather than just entrap and catch a malicious eavesdropper. Is this QKD technology already in use? Uh, QKD is actually well-developed uh, already, and several systems are on offer commercially and reportedly in use. Other approaches, many just a variation on QKD, include exploiting the mysterious property in quantum information science called entanglement. But those can be thought of as variations on QKD and are subject to the same limitations and weaknesses. Entanglement is a correlation between signals such that when a feature of one quantum particle is measured, the corresponding feature of the entangled one is instantly known, no matter how far apart the particles expressing those signals are. Early on, some technologists thought this feature would allow instant communication so that messages and control signals between our space probes and their ground stations would be instantaneous. Alas, that was soon proven to be false, for it actually violates Einstein's principle of relativity, one of the most well-proven theories we ever had. Nothing useful, no force, no message, no thing can travel faster than the speed of light. What are the current limitations of quantum communications? There are two significant limitations, and these are slowing acceptance of the technology to a crawl. First, the rate at which the technologies produce usable keys is not very fast by comparison to the rate of communication of digital signals sometimes called the Shannon limit. So key generation rates become the speed limit 
of quantum communications and are today well below what is needed to keep up with such activities as exchanging stock market data, transmitting medical records and intelligence data, and other private records. But it does work, and speeds are increasing, if slowly, so it's possible it will become more widely used. The second important limitation is much more troubling and less likely to be solved soon, and that is the problem of attenuation of the signal with distance, always subject to the famous inverse square law, just like gravitation or light intensity. In regular fiber optic telephony, there are amplifiers every 100 kilometers or so to boost the signal strength. The same laws of quantum physics that protect the quantum signal against eavesdropping prohibit the use of amplifiers because amplifiers just merely scramble the signal. The only viable approach known today is to use repeaters, that is, nodes, where the signal is decrypted, then amplified, and consequently re-encrypted as a fresh and stronger signal. These kinds of repeaters represent points of vulnerability where eavesdroppers can hack in with no need for decryption. Many researchers are working, however, on ideas for quantum signal boosters that do not entail decryption and re-encryption, but nothing has been shown to work well enough to catch on yet. The Chinese are running an interesting experiment to minimize the vulnerability of repeaters. They are basing their repeaters in a satellite where it would be hard, but not theoretically impossible, for the eavesdropper to access the unencrypted signal. Many researchers speculate there may be better solutions to mitigate this vulnerability, but none has been proven so far. So this year in April, the National Institute of Standards and Technology put out a report on the need to develop post-quantum cryptography. So what is post-quantum cryptography and how close are we to developing it? Uh, the phrase post-quantum cryptography refers to the issue we have just been talking about. What sort of encryption concepts can be used if quantum c computers become more successful and more mature? That is, if quantum computers eventually simplify the cracking of all one-way functions, functions that are easy to work forwards like multiplication but hard to work backwards like division, all public key encryption systems, incidentally, are based on one-way functions. If all these can be cracked by a quantum machine, then what encryption systems are available to us? that will protect our privacy, preserve our national security, and promote our socioeconomic systems. So what would be some examples of these encryption systems? Um, the only encryption technique that has ever been proven completely safe is the one-time pad, as I mentioned. Um, but a, a list of perfectly random bits in possession of the sender and receiver exclusively and can be added to a message to encrypt it or subtracted from it to decrypt it. That's called a symmetric key, and it's provably unbreakable. The devil is in the details, though, of how you generate the key. Is it truly random? And how you deliver it to both users and how make sh you make sure it's kept a secret. My mother used to say that two could keep a secret 
only if one is dead. If the key ever gets into the wrong hands, the secret is no longer. Such systems are provably resistant to attack by quantum computers, no matter how they develop. But such symmetric key systems are, as already pointed out, unwieldy and inconvenient. That's why public keys were developed in the first place. And so long as the keys are longer and more secure than the quantum computers are capable and extensive in scale, the communication will be private, even if stored and studied slowly, at least until a bigger quantum machine is built. Other than governments, where one can in intuitively see why they would want to decrypt messages and communications, what other industries or communities could benefit from these technologies? Well, quantum techniques for deciphering messages are perhaps more significant for human progress as scientific tools than as tools for eavesdropping on private communications. Scientists of biology and ecology have recently discovered the great benefit and clearer understanding that falls to them when considering their target system, the human cell, for example, as a communications system with elements of those systems acting by exchanging messages. Mother Nature normally encrypts those messages in order to prevent crosstalk from disrupting her systems. I can move one hand without causing the other hand to move because, in a sense, the message my brain sends out can only be deciphered by the intended recipient, even though the electrical signal is available to both hands simultaneously, as well as my liver, kidneys, and the rest of my body. A quantum computer could be used to crack the code and thus play a significant role in neurological research, in understanding systems biology, protein folding, and a host of other important biological problems that must be solved for medicine and healthcare to advance and improve. There is much more work going on in biology with respect to cryptography today than in any other place, only it's not called cryptography. That is, much of the cryptography and much of biology are actually the same problem. This observation is rendered increasingly likely because public key systems are suspected as being the lowest cost way, cost in terms of channel capacity, that is, to distribute both a message and the key. And if that's true, Mother Nature probably figured that out too many, many millennia ago. So the sweet spot for quantum computing code cracking is not state or bank secrecy, but science, especially biology and medicine, even though it may be disruptive or even destructive of public key concepts in the short run. So looking to establish a post-encryption world that regulates and restricts quantum computers and quantum computing is probably a grave error in public policy. Instead, we must look to better key distribution protocols like QKD. Is it easier to secure communications using quantum encryption, or is it easier to uncover these messages using quantum computers? Certainly, at least as it seems to me, it's always going to be easier to build a stronger encryption system than to build a stronger quantum computer. Doubling the length of a key while it reduces the effective capacity of the communication channel by a small portion 
increases uh, and, and it requires an exponential increase in the size of the quantum computer required to crack the key. So security in the key is easier, much easier to achieve than is the quantum computer required to crack the code. Moreover, these quantum-enabled one-way function solution aids, like the Shore algorithm, do not offer any insight or openings into how to decompose big problems into smaller ones that could fit in the computer and thus get around the scaling problem, as is done, for example, with calculus when using the integration by parts theorem at least we don't know of such a decomposition theorem for quantum problems. If we did, all hell would break loose and, and heaven would break loose too. <laughs> so does that mean that we can breathe easily and we'll be able to have private and safe communications? Well, not exactly. Much intelligence, including assessing the meaning of a message, can be deduced from carefully tracking its context rather than cracking its code. Recently, for example, it's been shown that deep learning neural networks can be trained using your medical history along with your DNA to determine in advance whether a certain specialized drug will be successful in arresting your hypertension symptoms or would another be more appropriate. A quantum computer is of a, of a special kind, an adiabatic quantum computer, was used to train the neural network to recognize the answer even though there was no underlying causal theory to assure the answer was correct. The quantum computer was shown to be able to train the network in record time, orders of magnitude faster than is possible with a classical computer. The machine was right on 95% of the time. And so generalizing this uh, example kind of suggests that we may be able to guess what's in an encrypted message based on its metadata context and the scenario in which the message is embedded. That is, if you wanted to anticipate a terrorist act, you don't necessarily need access to the perpetrator's cell phones. You can guess what they were communicating about if you know they've been buying supplies of explosive chemicals like nitrogen fertilizer and had the education on how to fashion a bomb from those chemicals and had elsewhere expressed tr strong views on threat issues of the day in such venues as Facebook, Twitter, and so forth. Post-9-11 forensic analysis showed that all the evidence was available that pointed to the likelihood of an incident if only it could have been gathered and brought to bear for a prediction. Now that communications and interactions of all sorts, voice and image messages, written ones, financial transaction data, and the Internet of Things are all accessible in principle from the web, using big data analytic tools like deep learning networks trained on quantum computers, can probably guess the content of the and socioeconomic import of a message in real time without decrypting it. This is all circumstantial evidence, of course, not strong enough to convict, but certainly strong enough to predict with a high probability. Great. Well, thank you for joining us today. You're very welcome.